All right, we are back. As promised on last week's program, we are going to uh, talk about, in this, our obituary section, I guess you might say, of Radio Parallax, the passing of Nellie Conley. Nellie Conley was the wife of former Texas governor and former Treasury Secretary John B. Conley. And at the time of her death, uh, two weeks ago, she was the last surviving person who was in John Kennedy's limousine in Dealey Plaza that day in 1963. As you listeners are doubtless aware, in the wake of John Kennedy's assassination, a blue ribbon panel was put together headed by former California governor and then Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren. The Warren Commission set to work a week after the Kennedy assassination with the stated purpose of investigating what happened that dark day in Dallas, but in fact... From the moment of its inception, it was set up to prove that the now-deceased assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, acted by himself without any help and throughout his life had been, in effect, a lone nut. On that day in 1963, Governor Conley and his wife Nellie were sitting directly in front of the President and Jackie Kennedy on a motorcade driving through Dallas. As the shots rang out, Mrs. Conley was uniquely situated to see what was taking place with John Kennedy sitting directly behind her and her husband sitting on her right side. Let's now take a couple of minutes to air an interview uh, which is available on the website for Texas Monthly Talks with Evan Smith. This includes a series of clips of conversation with Mrs. Conley recorded some time back. Here she describes what happened on November 22nd, 1963. The way we sat in the car, the, the president and Jackie were in the back seat on a plank seat, a straight seat. It could go, be moved up and down. John and I, John was in front of the president and I was in front of Miss Kennedy. We sat on jump seats that had a space between them. Now, John was a big man. That was a little space, really, for him. And uh, I heard that noise, and we'd had so many noises with motorcycles and all that, you know, that I thought. But I looked back at the president, and I saw his hands fly up to his face, and then he just sunk down in the car. Said nothing. Did nothing. His eyes looked strange, but I knew then that he had been hit. John, sitting in front of the president knew it was a shot because he shoots and uh, he turned to the right and couldn't see him flipped around to the left and couldn't see him he said no 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 because he knew that's what happened on the on the back turn about halfway john was just about halfway back came the second shot that hit john Blood was all over him, and I didn't know what to do, but I knew I ought to do something. So I thought if I'll just get him out of the line of fire where they can't hurt him anymore. So I pulled that big man across that thing into my lap. And, of course, he he was face up to me, and I could just, you know, it was just awful what I could see. And so I, I, I somehow got his hand up and put my hand over it and leaned down so that I could cover him a little. Mm -hmm. And see, this was seconds, seconds. And uh, the third shot came, and I couldn't look back anymore because of the weight of my husband. And uh, matter 
just fell all over us. That this was the headshot the president took. So bloody tiny little bits that looked like little bits of gunshot all over my clothes. And uh, then the uh, I guess it was the Secret Service man said to the driver, "Get out of this caravan." Go to the nearest hospital. What we need to point out to you, dear listener, is that um, in the initial investigations of what happened to President Kennedy, the FBI and everyone else seemed to agree that three shots rang out. The first shot struck the president, the second struck Governor Conley, and the third inflicted the fatal wound on Jack Kennedy. Conley was always adamant that the first shot that struck the president he heard, and that the second shot that struck him was indeed a second and separate shot. The strength of his testimony was always lessened somewhat by the fact that by his own admission, he never caught a glimpse of the president after hearing the first shot, which allowed the Warren Commission and others to speculate that perhaps the first shot missed. And, by the way, the need to have one of the shots miss arose because when the alleged murder weapon, a Manlicher Carcano Italian carbine World War II rifle, was operated, it was discovered that you literally could not work the bolt of the rifle faster than 2.3 seconds. Now, on Abraham Zapruder's famous home movie taken of the assassination, It appears that Kennedy is struck, and then Conley is struck after a distinct interval, exactly what all the witnesses assumed had happened. Unfortunately, the interval between those two events was less than 2.3 seconds, meaning either there was more than one gunman that day, or both men had to be struck by one bullet. This rather famous single bullet theory was... uh, the invention of a, uh, a young district attorney from Philadelphia, junior counsel for the Warren Commission, who's better known today as Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania. We wanted to play this Nellie Conley clip for you today because uh, unlike her husband, who never saw the president after the first shot, Nellie Conley turned around and did, as she clearly described in that clip. She saw the reaction of the president to the first shot, which hit him. She then observed her husband's reaction to the second shot, which struck him. If you take the time to examine Zapruder's film of the assassination, you will observe the interval between these two events uh, indeed appears to be less than the time needed to work Lee Oswald's Carcano rifle bolt. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, there is compelling evidence and always has been on film and for the best eyewitnesses in the plaza that there was more than one gun that day. So, ladies and gentlemen, why is that important? Well, it's important because the best evidence suggests that Lee Harvey Oswald was not the lone assassin. If we had time today, we might give you a lot of evidence to indicate that there's some good reasons to think Lee Harvey Oswald might not have been an assassin at all. We would submit that if you watch Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, you're seeing a better approximation of what happened that day than you are when you read the Warren Commission report. When we talk about various historical events that, uh, whose official versions we sometimes dispute, people say, well, if that's true, how come somebody hasn't spoken up? 
To address that, we were hoping to have Lisa Pease join us, as promised on last week's show. Unfortunately, due to a, 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 a communications breakdown, we're going to have to bring Lisa on next week. But she did send us the following. This item came from opednews.com, written by Doug Thompson, describing uh, a meeting he had with John Conley in 1982. At that time, Doug Thompson was the communications director for the re-election campaign of Congressman Manuel Lujan of New Mexico. To make a long story short, he met uh, Conley on an airplane. Uh, Conley was very anxious to help Manuel Lujan in New Mexico, and he agreed to do a fundraiser for him. Uh, At dinner after this event, Doug Thompson uh, was with Conley and asked him, did he think Lee Harvey Oswald fired the gun that killed Kennedy? Absolutely not, Conley said. I do not for one second believe the conclusions of the Warren Commission. So why not speak out? Because I love this country, said Conley, and we needed closure at the time. I will never speak out publicly about what I believe. Commented Thompson in the article, John Conley felt he served his country best by concealing his doubts about the Warren Commission's whitewash. But his silence may have contributed to the growing perception that our elected leaders can rewrite history to fit their political agendas. Had Conley spoken out as a high-ranking political figure with doubts about the official version of what happened, it might have sent a signal that Americans deserve the truth from their government even when the truth hurts. We would certainly uh, tie events of 1963 to events of 2006, events taking place in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and uh, right here at home, and would say uh, we would agree with Doug Thompson that Americans deserve the truth from their government, even when that truth hurts. All right, in a a different subject, but also uh, one which unfortunately belongs in, in the third segment where we talk about the passing of people, is this item from the September 1st Sacramento Bee, noting that gene therapy halted melanoma. It was announced on that day that a team of researchers from the National Cancer Institute successfully treated two cancer patients out of a group of 17 using gene therapy. The new report marks the first time that genetically engineered immune system cells, specifically T lymphocytes, have produced these results. Positive results had been obtained four years earlier when researchers had used naturally occurring anti-cancer cells extracted from patients' tumors. Some of those patients had also had long-term disappearance of their cancers. This is, uh, this is very, encouraging, uh, very encouraging research, and we're going to report on it at greater length in some future programs. And I'm sorry to report that a friend of mine from medical school was one of those... Uh, those patients with malignant melanoma who succumbed to the disease in spite of enrolling in this study. John was a very good guy. I liked him a lot. He was one of the smartest people I've ever been associated with, and I was very sorry to find out that he had passed away six months ago from his cancer. I take consolation from a couple of things in this, in that uh, in John's enrolling in this study, He and the other 14 patients who who did not survive, unfortunately, will nevertheless advance medical science and hopefully uh, uh, bring about quicker breakthroughs for the rest of us who, you know, may someday suffer the same affliction. It also serves as a reminder to me and to all of you, dear listeners, to to make sure you get regular checkups and and not to let anything go. Not, Not that John did, but... 
it's a natural human tendency to figure that, oh, it's probably not that bad. And sometimes it is. So, you know, if you have some doubts about something, please see your doctor and do get the regular health maintenance checkups you should get at various milestones in life. Things like mammograms, colonoscopies, getting your prostate checked. These are not uh, real fun things to go out and have done, but they are necessary things to have done if you want to be sure that you catch something that's potentially curable early. And this is something to keep in mind even if you don't have health insurance. What does a new car cost? What does a new big screen TV cost? You know, uh, Things that cost thousands of dollars, we sometimes think nothing about going out and buying. But uh, even if you, even if you seems that you can't afford to get a test that might cost a thousand dollars, well, that thousand dollars might save your life. So it is, you know, it is worth giving a second thought to in terms of where we all place our priorities. All right, let's close the show with some uh, some science and some and some good news items. Uh, apparently, the world's tallest living thing has been discovered in Redwood National Park in the north coast here in California. At 378.1 feet, what's been called the Hyperion Tree is the new champion. It towers eight feet above the, uh, the previous record holder, uh, the Stratosphere Giant. It's very cool. There's apparently a team of California researchers who spend most of their time bushwhacking through the North Coast forest looking for taller and taller trees. So far, the group has found about 135 redwoods that reach higher than 350 feet. Now, we talked a couple weeks back about the demotion of Pluto, and uh, <laughs> we'll talk more about that in the future. But uh, in other planetary news of the remaining Big Eight here in the solar system... We uh, would first like to note uh, news about the planet Uranus. And yes, that is how you pronounce it, Uranus. It is incorrect to call it Uranus. Yes, we know that ruins quite a few jokes, but it really is Uranus. Although Uranus was unknown to the ancient uh, peoples of Earth, it actually is visible to the naked eye, though just barely. If you consult uh, your local sky charts, which I'm sure you can find on the web, you can then go out in the next couple of weeks and actually see it with your naked eye. I did it a few years back, and I might do it again this time. It's, it's kind of cool. It's 5.7 magnitude, 6 being the dimmest thing your eye can see, so it just barely makes the grade. But with a little bit of perseverance, you, you can actually see the seventh planet from the sun. In other news from Uranus, if you were out there at the seventh planet, you would be noticing about this time of its year, of 84 Earth years duration, that you'd be having uh, the moons come between the surface of the planet and the sun. Because uh, the orbit of Uranus is tipped over on its side, this only happens every 40 years or so. That's every 40 Earth years or so. It's kind of hard to explain on the radio, but look it up on the web. It's kind of curious. When the Voyager spacecraft went by Uranus, the whole moon system looked like a big bullseye from, from Earth. This is hard to explain on the radio without pictures, but look it up on the web. It'll be worth your while. And in news from the planet Venus, we have the following. Earth's twin, which is something like 8% smaller than our planet, uh, but remarkably similar in, in many, many respects, 
has gotten a second look through the assistance of Don Mitchell of Redmond, Washington. Mr. Mitchell is a retired researcher from Bell Labs and Microsoft Research, and he's matched his computer science and image processing skills with some old Soviet spacecraft data from Venus. Now, uh, the United States has never accomplished this, but the USSR managed to land two spacecraft on the surface of Venus. They didn't last very long because the surface of Venus is so hot that it would melt lead. But uh, enterprising Soviet engineers uh, 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 built some spacecraft, put cameras on them, and landed them on some lava flows in the surface of Venus where they snapped a couple of pictures before they were incinerated. And no, we can't tell you what they used for solder. But at any rate, there are four existing photographs, because each one of these probes had two cameras, of what the surface of Venus looks like. Well, uh, Mr. Mitchell got together with some Soviet friends who had the original transmissions, and he recalibrated some of the data to sharpen up the photographs. And uh, if you go on the web, you'll see some, some pretty cool photographs of what it looks like on Venus, the only uh, photos that we have from the surface of the planet. That is another one to look up on the web. We recommend it highly. And last item of today's show, in news from the planet Mars, the hardworking Opportunity rover, one of the two still functioning robots operating on the Martian surface, is tooling along headed for Victoria Crater. It's 360 feet away from a crater that's roughly a half mile wide and 230 feet deep. The meteor impact that excavated this crater, of course, did quite a bit of digging, which is going to expose some very interesting rock layers, uh, at least potentially expose some very interesting rock layers to the Opportunity rover. Steve Squires, the science team leader of the Mars Exploration Rover mission, is very excited by this. As you will no doubt uh, recall, Dr. Squires spoke to us here on Radio Parallax, and uh, we hope to get him back on again probably after the rovers have both given up the ghost, because in the meantime, he's an awfully busy man. This is some pretty cool stuff. Uh, both these rovers were warranted for 90 days, and they're both, you know, four months away from their third year on the Red Planet. Boy, I hope my Subaru can do so well against its warranty. That's it for today's show. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We would like to thank our good friend Dr. Andy Jones for joining us and expect Lisa Pease to be back with us again on next week's program, at which time we will be interviewing Mark Anderson. Dr. Anderson, who curiously enough is an astrophysicist, has written Shakespeare by Another Name, The Life of Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, The Man Who Was Shakespeare. If that isn't an interesting interview, I'll eat my hat. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Join us again next Thursday at 5 o'clock. In the meantime, stay tuned for Todd.